the clearest, most universally accepted articulation of the principles of Jewish faith are the Rambam's, Maimonides' 13 principles of faith. These 13 principles were codified in his commentary on Mishnah as an introduction to chapter 10 of the book of Sanhedrin. It was also added to Jewish prayer, to Jewish liturgy, in the Animamin prayer, in the Yigdal prayer. And these 13 ideals, these 13 principles are a concise formulation of what are the necessary preconditions of faith for the Jew. What are they? They are these 13. Though these 13 were contested, they were butch written to try to counteract them. There were other formulations uh, that seem to have tried to rival the Rambam's 13 principles. There has not been much debate for centuries. And it, we could say with great confidence that if you want to know what the framework of Jewish belief is, you should look at the Rambam's 13 principles. Now, he bases it on the Mishnah, the Mishnah in the book of Sanhedrin that tells us a few things. It tells us, number one, that all Jews have a portion in Olam Abba, again, loosely translated as the afterlife. And the Ramam elsewhere writes that the ultimate goal of life, why are we here? What are we living for? It is to gain admission to be part of that select fraternity, the people that merit a portion in Olam Abba. On a little bit of a deeper level, what we're also told is that our soul originates from the world of souls. It is temporarily placed in here, where we are today, the current iteration of man, body hosting a soul. And the objective of our time here is to create a path for our soul to go back to its homeland, to, to where it comes from to allow it to journey back home, and that's the objective of Torah. And we're told that there's 13 basic principles that are needed to ensure that you get there. And the Mishnah tells us all Jews, by dint of being part of the Abrahamic fraternity, of being part of the Almighty's chosen people, they have a close connection to God, and therefore they're guaranteed a portion in Olam Abba with certain exceptions. Now, I want to go through a little bit of those exceptions and break them down into two separate categories. The exceptions fall into two separate categories, as we shall see. So the Rambam lists the people who do not have a portion in Olam Abba. Rather, they, something else happens to them. And they are the heretics, the Aprikorsim, which is a different kind of heretic, those that repudiate Torah, those that repudiate resurrection, those that repudiate Messiah, rebellious ones, those that cause the public to sin, those that deviate from the path of the public, people who do sins brazenly with an outstretched arm, informers, people who impose their dread upon the public, not for the sake of heaven, murderers, habitual speakers of Lashon Hara, and those who reverse their circumcision ceremony. And the way this breaks down is you'll notice there are certain sins that are so bad, that are so unconscionable, that are so heinous that someone does that, they can have a portion of the afterlife. 
Someone's a murderer. It's the worst thing that someone could possibly do to kill someone else. It's so bad, you lose your portion in Olamabah. Someone who is an informer, someone who causes the public to sin, someone who is rebellious. These are people who are booted out of heaven because their sins are beyond the pale. There's a second kind of person that doesn't get admitted to Olamabah to the afterlife. And what you'll notice is that these are not people who are not admitted because of terrible sins. Rather, they never were on the invite list to begin with. So for example, one of the things that are listed here of people who lose their portion in Olamabah is someone who reverses their circumcision, which was a common thing that happened in the Roman times, in the Greek times. People would go to the gymnasium They'd go to do these sports in the nude, in the nude, and they'd be embarrassed to have their circumcision. They go through the very painful process of undoing it to make it look like they were never circumcised. Now, I actually looked throughout the whole Torah, and you don't find a prohibition against circumcision removal. There's no prohibition against it. So, how is it possible that someone who doesn't who does something that's not even prohibited, it's so bad they get booted from the afterlife. So the answer is, is that it's not that they get kicked out of the afterlife because of their sin. It's that they never were in it to begin with. Our circumcision that we have comes all the way from times of Abraham. That is this bind, the covenant between Abraham and God, and God and Abraham's descendants. The only reason why we have a connection to spirituality, to purity, to the world of our souls is because we, by default, are part of the Abrahamic fraternity. Whatever we have with Abraham, we're kind of latching onto his relationship with God. We're joining the fray. We're jumping on the bad wagon. And therefore, whatever relationship he had with God, we are kind of inheriting in it. Therefore, what happens when someone says, you know what? I am not interested in this bind of the Abrahamic fraternity, this symbol of the brand of Abraham. I'm not interested in the circumcision. It's not that this is a sin, that it's so bad, kicks them out of heaven. It's because they themselves are saying, I'm not interested in the prerequisites for heaven. It's not that they did something so bad that they lost admission It's that they disincluded themselves from the group of people that have admission. And therefore, you don't, you don't want to be part of Abrahamic's family, his destiny, his legacy. Okay. You find yourself now outside of the doors of heaven. When we're told that there's 13 principles of faith, these again are ideals that may not be even a mitzvah. For example, there is no mitzvah in the Torah, thou shall await Messiah. It doesn't say it anywhere. And even the references for Messiah are not explicit. They're not overt. Again, the Talmud spends a lot of time trying to show where it's hinted. For example, we recently had the idea of uh, the splitting of the sea. And the after, after the splitting of the sea, there's the song. How does the song begin? Az Yashir Moshe. Then Moses will sing. That's if you read it literally. Says the Talmud, this is evidence that Moses is coming back. It's an evidence, uh, this is evidence of the resurrection. 
But again, it's a hint. It's not something which is explicit. And so there's no mitzvah to believe in the resurrection. There's no mitzvah to believe in the Messiah. Yet if you don't believe in it, you're out of the fold. You lose your portion in Olam That's the answer. The answer is that once there are certain ideals, certain behaviors that are central to be part of the team, the fraternity, so to speak, that gains you admittance to Olam to begin with, there's 13 principles of belief and there's certain behaviorisms that are necessary to be included in this group of people. That's again, that's the, the general idea of the 13 principles, what they do, what they evoke within us. And they break down into three different categories. I want to get more into these three categories because I think they open up for, for us new vistas of faith that we never had access to prior. The first five of the 13 principles orient around our relationship with God. The next four orient around Torah. And the final four orient around reward and punishment, but also around the afterlife and the events that we don't experience in our world, reward and punishment, Messiah, and resurrection of the dead. It is interesting that these three ideals, the idea of God, Torah, reward and punishment, they relate to the three revelations of history. There's three revelations in history and all of Jewish history and most of Jewish prayer orients around these three ideas. And that is creation. That's when God created the world. B, it's Exodus, when God revealed himself, not via creation, but via taking the nation out of the land of Egypt, doing all the miracles, concomitant to the Exodus, Sinai experience, revealing himself, that's Torah. And C, it's the future redemption, which we call Messiah, resurrection of the dead. When we say that we believe We believe really in these three revelations of God, the one in the past, the one in the present, and the one in the future. The past is where God hid himself, so to speak, in the world. God created the world, but did it in a way that not every single thing that exists is stamped in a undeniable way. This is the handiwork of God. God is, so to speak, hidden behind the facade of nature. And that was God's creation. And of course, God is still feeding life to this creation. But that is going back, so to speak, to the six days of creation and the world that resulted from God's work. And then you have Torah. Then you have this middle revelation. And there's many important differences between these two revelations. So most important is that whereas God is hidden in nature. God is not revealed in the world around us. His handiwork is present. His signature, so to speak, is not. And therefore, if someone wants to understand God, someone wants to reveal or discover God from the world around them, they could do it. But it's pretty hard. It's hard because he's hidden. There is the veneer. There is the facade. There is the obstacle of nature 
that seems to obfuscate God. And then what happens at Sinai? Or even earlier, what happens at the burning bush? Moses has prophecy. And that kickstarts essentially 40 years of non-stop, clear, undeniable, revealed miracles on a regular, ongoing basis. So, of course, it starts with Moses, and he starts having prophecy with God. And for seven days, they're talking, and they're planning the Exodus. And, of course, Moses is objecting, he's resisting, he doesn't want to. We read about this chapter three of the book of Exodus. Finally, Moses goes and goes to Pharaoh and starts doing miracles. He drops the staff, take it with Aaron, it turns into a serpent, and that's just the beginning. And of course, we have the 10 plagues. And each one of these 10 plagues, what, what do you see? You see the nature being defied, and you see targeted, specific miracles. They're targeted because they only affect the Egyptians. They don't affect the Jews. And there's covering the totality of existence. Every power that people could have said is its own independent power, now everyone sees it's undeniable to all, this is really all coalesced in the hands of God. And he's able to dispense it and disperse it at will. You have a glass of water, the Jew drinks it, it's water. The Egyptian drinks it, it's blood. And that's present throughout the whole land of Egypt. Every single Jew has this incredible, transformative, transcendental experience. God is is involved with me on an individual. He knows who I am. He knows that I'm the Jew. My neighbor is the Egyptian. I have the water. He has the blood. And that is the pattern throughout all the ten plagues. Culminating, of course, in every Egyptian household, there's at least one dead person at the death of the firstborn. And amongst the Jews... Even the dogs don't bark. This is not a hidden miracle. This is not some sort of what we have to try to figure out where is God. It's evident. It's it's evident to all. And it gets even more intense. It escalates. Jewish people leave. Of course, there's all kinds of miracles. You have 18 minutes to gather millions of people together and move them 120 miles. That's, of course, something that could only happen via miraculous means. The Jewish people spend seven days until finally they're trapped. They're surrounded by their enemies, and the enemies have blood in their eyes. They are out for revenge, and then behind them they have the water, the Sea of Reeds. And again, the miracle intensifies. The water split. They're like walls on each side, and the Jewish people walk and dry land. The Egyptians walk and the water crashes upon them. And the miracle is so overt, it's so undeniable, everyone in unison starts erupting in song. This is my God, Zekeli Van Veyu. This, says the Talmud, they're pointing at it. There's no, there's no denial. It's evident. It is sensory. It is present in front of them. And you know what? The miracles are yet to intensify. A few weeks later, they're out of food. They're in the desert. What starts happening? Mountains and mountains of magical manna descend from heaven every day. And of course, quail at night. And that continues 
multiple meals a day for a nation of millions. It continues for 40 years, uninterrupted, 40 years, never miss a day besides for Shabbos, of course. You get two double portion on Friday. This is not some sort of revelation where you have to discover God through from 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 his hidden perch, so to speak, as the puppeteer overseeing history and the world around us and nature. This is present, undeniable. They want to have water. Simple. Moshe, go hit the rock, and the rock er- splits into two, and there's enough water to feed, to give water to a nation of millions, each one of them, by the way, with many, many animals and livestock and things like that. Again, these are God revealing himself in a way that's undeniable. And of course, the absolute zenith of that is at Sinai. An entire nation, men, women, children, future people who have yet to be born. In fact, the Talmud says future converts that have yet to convert. All of them converge on the mountain and temporarily experience prophecy, hear the words of God directly. And, of course, they hear it, and it's too painful for them. And they tell Moses, no, no, this is beyond us. This revelation is even too much for us. But it's quite clear. And the Torah emphasizes this and reiterates this again and again. This was not something that Moses heard by himself. This was the entire nation, every single person experienced prophecy. Directly, God talking to them directly. And you know what? That is a fact that has not been contested since then. And that is the second revelation. And of course, that continues all the way to the Jewish people entering the land of Israel. Once they enter the land of Israel, they're almost on their own. Yes, there are still some miracles. There are still some prophets. But Moshe has gone. The ever-present miracles are mostly gone. And it's a different world. But these 40 years... That's a nonstop revelation of God where God exposed himself in the world. And God tells us, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, God spoke to you face to face. Something that's never happened, never been replicated. That's the second revelation of our history. And it's targeted because it's only for the Jews. No one else experiences it unless future converts. They were there kind of on a spiritual level. And that's the second kind of realm of our history. And there's many parallels, by the way. The Talmud points out that if you count the amount of times it says, and Hashem said, let there be light, let there be this, let there be that, you count it in Genesis, it's 10 of them. There's 10 utterances of God in Genesis. The revelation of Genesis is 10 utterances. Well, what's the revelation of the Exodus? 10 plates corresponding to the 10 utterances. Ten Commandments at Sinai, these are all the same thing, God revealing himself. The difference is, is that for the creation, it's hidden. God's utterances are hidden in the world that he created. If we want to discover God through that process, we have to extrapolate. We have to extract from the world that he created those ten utterances. Whereas by Sinai and by the Exodus, the miracles, the ten plagues and the ten and the ten commandments were evident to all and undeniable to all those who participated in it. Well, if you already have 
the complete face-to-face revelation of the Exodus, why is there a need for a third revelation yet to come? And the answer is, is that the Jewish people got the Torah, had the experience of the Exodus, experience witnessed these tremendous miracles, and therefore they were elevated to a level of emunah, of faith, that's unprecedented. Well, what about the rest of the world? What about all of humanity? We're a small sliver of everyone. We are anticipating a third revelation, a revelation that will create the same effect that that the second revelation gave to us, that it had the same effect for all of humanity. Everyone will know. Everyone that is created will know that you created. Everything that's been formed will know that you informed him. Everyone who has a soul will say, God, king of Israel, is king, and his kingdom dominates all. That's what we're looking forward to. That's the third realm, the third revelation that we're anticipating. And these three things are the three principles of the 13 principles. The first five are belief in God, God of the creator. Now, it's important to stress, when we talk about God the creator, what's the first verse of the Ten Commandments? I'm Lord your God. Who took you out of the land of Egypt? For us, the belief in God is not just the God who created the world. It's that intimate relationship of the God who took us out of the land of Egypt, the face-to-face kind of relationship. But that's the first, God as creator. And then the next four, God as the giver of Torah. And finally, which is again, which is for the Jewish people alone. And the next four are that third realm of the revelation, the third epic of history, and that is the upcoming revelation. I want to point out just briefly that this pattern exists elsewhere. For example, a very famous teaching in the Talmud, the Talmud tells us that the world is a 6,000-year ordeal. 6,000 years. This is from the book of Sanhedrin on page 97a on the bottom. They taught in the Academy of Elijah. The world is 6,000 years. 2,000 years of emptiness, of desolation. 2,000 years of Torah. 2,000 years of Messiah. This one statement is going to provide for us a framework of Jewish history, also a framework of world history, but also it's going to highlight these three kind of shifts that are going to happen in the world. You have 2,000 years of emptiness. This era is a time where no one recognized God, where the revelations were not manifested to the world, where people were engaging in idolatry, where people engaged in paganism, where the revelation of God was completely hidden. And who shows up at the end of those 2,000 years? Of course, that's Abraham. And in fact, the Jewish sources peg Abraham to be born in the year 1948 from Adam. And Abraham shows up and he begins to discover God. Now, how does he discover God? He discovers God who was hidden. God is hidden in the world, and Abraham analyzes and studies the world 
and draws God out, so to speak, of the hidden world around him. Abraham takes the world of emptiness, of desolation, and provides the world with some light, infuses some light amidst the darkness. And he's going to end one era and open up the next era. He's going to open up the world in which the ideals of monotheism are going to be perpetuated to his children, but also God's going to promise that his children are going to be the people that get the next, so to speak, get a down payment, so to speak, on the next revelation. They're going to be the nation of God. They're going to be the kingdom of priests and the holy, and the holy people and the holy nation. They're going to be the ones to whom God is going to speak to directly at Sinai. However, as a caveat, they're also going to be the people that are going to be treated very harshly. They're going to spend 400 years as foreigners in a foreign land. They're going to be enslaved and tormented. And only then will they have, after having gone through the iron crucible of Egypt, only then will they be able to have these tremendous revelations at Sinai. The Talmud also tells us that Abraham himself studied Torah. How old was Abraham when he studied Torah? The Midrash tells us he was 52. What's 52 plus 1948? It's 2000. Exactly at the year 2000, the shift happens. The emptiness is over. God is now known to the world to a certain degree. And the next era begins of consolidation. Abraham and Abraham's descendants are going to be the nation of Torah. The nation that's going to have that tremendous second revelation at the Exodus and at Sinai. And that's going to help cause and precipitate the third revelation, the revelation of, of, of Messiah. So you have a discovery. Then you have 2,000 years of consolidation. Jewish people, they're almost on an island. Abraham, he influences tens of thousands of people, but they're all gone from history. We don't know where they are. They disintegrated. Just Abraham and his family maintain these truths. They go down to Egypt, tormented, but they grow, but they stay distinct. And then they get the Torah, and that becomes the Torah of the Jewish people, no one else. And you know what? You know what? No one else is even interested. No one's interested. The idea of monotheism is a crackpot theory. And that essentially continues for 2,000 years. Though the Jewish people encounter great civilizations, none of them start buying in to what we're offering. And then what happens? The 2,000 years of Messiah come. And almost overnight, the whole world goes crazy trying to learn what we know, what we've been working on for thousands of years. And then you have Christianity starting, and that's kind of like bringing the world or the masses towards a closer version of monotheism. And you have Islam starting. And these are like Abraham's grandchildren continuing his legacy, so to speak, to bring the world much, much closer to the end game of Messiah. So you have, again, these patterns. And these patterns are fulfilled, by the way, with the three patriarchs as well. Abraham discovers... Isaac consolidates, and Jacob disseminates, spreads it out to the world. And there's all kinds of parallels in their character. So number one, Abraham, where is he born? He's born outside of Israel. And he comes to Israel. He discovers. Isaac is born inside Israel and is told that he can't leave. He has to stay there. He wants to leave. God says, no, you got to stay here. Now is the time of integration, of consolidation. It's not yet time to spread the message. And then comes along Jacob born in Israel, spreads the message everywhere else, dies actually outside of Israel. 
and only post-mortems brought back to Israel. Similarly, Abraham is circumcised at an advanced age. Isaac is the first one to be circumcised at eight days. Jacob, of course, is circumcised, but what does he do? His sons, two sons, circumcise the people of Shechem. That's Shimon Levi. His other son, Joseph, circumcised all the people of Egypt. When people came to Joseph for grain, he would tell them, when he was a viceroy of Egypt, he would tell them, you have to circumcise or else you don't get any grain. Again, this idea of the third element, the, the Jacob, so to speak, element, it's not just keeping the Torah and its ideals to ourselves, it's spreading it to the world. By the way, we have the idea of three temples. First temple, second temple, third temple, corresponding to Abram, to Isaac, to Jacob. Discovery, consolidation, and then exposure to all. When we're talking about these 13 principles, they're fitting into these three revelations that are at the bedrock of our nation and what we stand for. And again, like we said, if you look at the first verse, that the Raman brings for the first of the principles, he brings the verse, I am the Lord, your God, who took you out of the land of Egypt. It does not say, I am Hashem who created the world. Rather, I am Hashem who extracted you from Egypt. What's demanded of us when we believe in God is not just God who is the creator, but God is the creator who took us out of the land of Egypt. Let's see what that implies. So with that introduction, let's dig into principle number one, the belief in the existence of God. I want to read the text of the Animamin, which is, again, a shortened version of this idea, which is found in the prayer books. And then we'll read the actual text of the Rambam, where he delineates this principle. So the first text is, I believe with complete faith, that the Creator, may His name be blessed, Ubore, he's the creator. Umanhid, he oversees, he supervises everything that was created. Vuhu, Levado, and he alone, Asa, made, Ose, makes, Viaase, and will make, Lechol Hamaasem, to all those things that are made. In a nutshell, the idea of the first principle is to believe that God created, but not just God created, went away. God creates, God created and continues to create. God created and oversees. Everything that has been created was created by God. Everything that continually exists, exists only and insofar as God wills it to exist. In the full text of the Rambam, from his commentary Mishnah, we read some more details about this principle. He tells us to believe in the existence of the Creator, and that is that there is an existence, there is an entity who is perfect, who is complete in all manners of existence. He is the cause of the existence of all things that exist, meaning that there's like two things. There is God, and then there's everything else that's not God. God, says the Rambam in this principle, is the cause of everything else that is not God. It means everything else is to a creation. Angels, creation. 
Heavens and earth, creation. Galaxies, creations. Humans, creations. Amoebas, creations. Bacteria, creation. Everything, everything, everything besides for God is a creation and God created all those things. Moreover, continues the Rambam, the existence of everything else that was created is only as a result of God sustaining them, which is an important point. It's not feasible by this definition for God to create the world and then to move on to bigger and greater things. Because the second a creation is severed from its creator, the creation ceases to exist. The creation only exists so long as God continually wills it to continually exist. We say this every morning in the prayer. God in his goodness renews every single day the handiwork of creation. When did creation happen? We would say according to the Torah, 5,779 years ago plus six days. That's when creation started to happen. But really, that's when it happened the first time. But it happens again today. It happens again yesterday. It happens again tomorrow. It continually happens because for something to exist, it has to be recreated anew every second or else the second God withdraws his creative force from it, it ceases to exist. Just as an aside, there is a principle in Jewish philosophy called kfitzat haderech, which literally means leaping or jumping along the way. So if you want to travel from here to Virginia, you got to travel the whole way, kind of manually. But if you have kfitzat haderech, you can leap the way, you get there much faster. So, for example, we're told in Genesis, Rashi tells us that when Jacob traveled, he had kvitzat aderach. He leapt away. It, was very, it happened much faster. It's kind of an interesting idea that the, the righteous people, they have accelerated travel. They take the uh, high occupancy vehicle lane. They have the fast track. That's, what it, that, that's the idea. What does that mean? On a theological level, this is what it means. God creates everything. Not just created everything, but creates everything and continually creates them. Meaning that I don't exist at all as an independent entity outside of God. God chose to create me and chose to create me again. And even though I was created five seconds ago sitting on this chair, I was also created right now sitting on this chair. But it could have been just as easy for God to create me, not on this chair, but in a chair in my house. And then I would just poof, disappear, and you guys would worry, wonder where I am. But it's just the most common practice of God is to continually create someone in the place where they were a second ago, which is why we're stationary. Because God created me, again, sitting over here. For the righteous, God sometimes does miracles. And it's not difficult for God to do a miracle. It's just difficult for us to process it because we're not used to it. God creates Jacob in one place. The next millisecond creates him in a different place. So he leapt. He jumped from one place to another, not because he knocked out all the people along the way, but rather because he leapt, so to speak. He existed here, then he existed there, and there was no time in between for that journey to take place. 
That's this idea. God created us. God continually creates us. And God sustains us if God withdraws his force, his vitality that he's giving us, we cease existing immediately. Moreover, continues the Rambam, and this is another analog of this idea. Everything is dependent upon God, but God is independent, is not dependent upon anything else. Meaning, explains the Rambam, should we consider and conceive an existence where God would not exist, by definition, nothing else would exist because everything else exists only so far as God wills it to exist. Whereas, should we cease existing, God would still exist because his existence is not dependent on our existence, but our existence is dependent on his, his existence. And therefore, as a result, God is independent. So Hashem is Achad. He's one. He's independent. He has unity. He has mastery. He's the true Existence, because every other existence is only relative existence. It's only existence insofar as God wants it to exist. It doesn't stand on its own. Only God stands, so to speak, on his own. He doesn't need anything else. When we say God's perfect, God lacks nothing. This is what it means. Everything else that exists only exists for the sake of those things, not for God, because God can be independent of those things. We're dependent. He is independent. And the Ram concludes... Everything besides for him, including the angels and the galaxies, what's in them, what's below them, what's above them, all that need him for his existence, and he does not need them for existence. That's the conclusion of the first principle. And this, the first principle, as is indicated in the text, I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. So that's the Rambam's formulation of the first principle. The knowledge the acknowledgement of the existence of the creator who created, sustains, supervises, oversees, is independent, is not subject to us. We're dependent upon him. He's not dependent on us. Everything that exists, existed because he willed it to exist and he continually wills it to continually exist. It's been pointed out that in Jewish literature, there is an idea called kofer be'ikr, which means someone who repudiates the principle. And the Rama himself writes, when he elucidates this first principle, he says that someone who does not believe in this first principle is kofer be'ikr, is someone who repudiates the principle, for this is the true principle upon which everything else hinges. Meaning that when we talk about 13 principles, they are 13 dimensions of this first principle. Really, this is the only principle. There's only one principle. It's this one. Everything else is a subset of this principle. As an example, this is a little bit clever. The Hebrew word for one is echad. The gematria of the word echad meaning the numerical value of the word echad, the aleph is one, the chet is eight, the dalet is four. What is eight plus four plus one? Of course, the answer is 13. The 13 principles of faith are all there to comprise the one principle, the one principle that really towers above them all, and that is the existence of God. 
Moreover, we talk about God. Of course, that covers the first five that directly orient around what our definition of God is. But God and God's Torah are really are inseparable. And there's a very famous line that we say from the Zohar that Kutshu Brichu Ve'araisa, God and the Torah, is Chad who is one. It's the same thing. They're indivisible from each other. And therefore that's all, again, those next four are part of that same original principle. And finally, when we talk about us and our existence, our existence is dependent upon how much we are cleaved, how much we cling to God. And therefore, reward and punishment is a natural extension of this principle. Because if someone is divorced or severed from God, then as a result, they cease having existence. And reward and punishment is a reflection of how much existence someone has. And the more someone is connected to God, which is the only thing that really exists, the more existence, the more existence they have by extension, whereas, and that's, and that's reward, whereas punishment is severing from God, because God is the only thing that, which has existence, and therefore by the degree that someone is severed from God, that's the degree that they don't have existence, and that is punishment. Thus, in effect, all 13 principles can really fit in to this one idea. I want to conclude our initial discussions on this first principle with one question that we'll try to answer today and one question that we'll have to leave for next time. The question that I want to answer today is the question of faith versus knowledge. This principle, are we obligated to understand it logically? Is it an article of logic or an article of faith? Must we stop thinking critically to fulfill this principle or not? It's an interesting question. So if you look at the Hebrew translation of the Rambam's 13 principles, he says, Sheyamin, a person has to believe. Ani ma'amin, I believe. However, if you look at the Rambam's corresponding work, the Mishnah Torah and the beginning of Mishnah Torah, he starts with Yisoda, Yisodos, Vamuda Chachma, Adam. A person has to know, has to have knowledge. Is it knowledge? Is it belief? Or is it someplace in between? The Ram does add that Abraham was able to discover evidence for the existence of God. And the Ram also encourages us to pursue evidence to discover the existence of God. Moreover, there's a Mishnah Perke Avos that tells us that da mashetashiv lapitoros, you have to know how to respond to a heretic, which seems like even a level beyond knowledge. There's Maybe there's faith, belief, knowledge, and the knowledge with sufficient strength to be able to thwart the arguments of the heretic. It seems like it's even another level. So which one is it? I want to dig into this subject. The Ramah himself writes that there's different levels of faith. There's a level of faith based upon tradition, which means someone, their parents who don't lie to them, told them this is the way it was, and therefore they believe it, and they don't 
live on a very sophisticated plateau. They don't – they're not asking so many questions. They're not thinking about so many things. And they just believe based upon tradition. So that's a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing because, well, they believe. It's a bad thing because, well, what happens when they're confronted with questions? Or what happens when they meet heretics? It's quite likely that the heretic may triumph over them because the heretic did spend time honing their heresy, whereas the other guy didn't spend time honing his faith. And therefore, it's a little brittle. It's fragile. It could potentially be upended. Is that sufficient? Thrum says that, listen, it is a certain degree. It is a certain level of confidence that is good, but it's really not good enough. Really, what we need to do is to have knowledge and maybe even sufficient knowledge to be able to one-up a potential heretic who has a debate with us. Now, it's also important to stress, the Mishnah does not tell us that we have to actually engage in debate. We just have to be armed with the ability to triumph in the debate should a debate be forced upon us. But we don't necessarily like looking for debate because it's usually fruit, fruitless, it's futile because the person who's a heretic, that's what it says on their business card. I'm a heretic, heresy, ink, And therefore, they're entrenched in their position no matter how much evidence you bring. And it's very rare to see someone have the strength of character and resolve to be able to turn away from the ways of heresy of their past. It's very rare to meet someone like that. So what are you going to gain by trying to talk to them? And in fact, the Talmud actually rules in the book of Sanhedrin, page 38b, that it is prohibited to debate a Jewish heretic, but it is permitted to debate a non-Jewish heretic. Why? Commentaries explain, because what's going to be? You have a Jewish heretic, they think they're a heretic, and now they're debating you. You win the argument, let's say, based upon non partial, impartial. The impartial vote is that you won. But so what? Do they are they are they do they get up at the end of the debate, you know what? You're right. I give in. Of course not. People don't do that. Maybe a few people do it, but it's very rare. So in fa- in effect, when you're debating with the Jewish heretic, all you're doing is further entrenching them in their ways of heresy. You think you're doing something good, but really you're doing something bad. And therefore, it's dicey territory and don't go there. But the, 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 the bottom line here that I want to stress is that this really demands upon us to develop for ourselves a way of understanding this not only emotionally, not only the way we feel, but the way we think and the way that we can really even defend logically. And I think this could be scary because the way these things are presented to us is in very much philosophical terms. And the reason why it's presented in philosophical terms, the reason why these debates are for very advanced theologians and not for common folk, is because the only way to reject the idea of an intelligent creator is if you obfuscate, if you confuse, if you make things complicated, if you speak in words that people don't understand, if you kind of raise it to a very, very theoretical level, and that's the only way you can justify your claim. And therefore, ironically, 
the more complicated you get, the more likely you are to think, A, that you have all the answers, and to not realize things that are obvious. And things that are obvious are the ones that all point you to the existence of God in a way that's really irrefutable. And asking the simple questions and probing on the simple planes of thought, that's what's going to lead you to God, not the philosophy. It's almost as if we could say that the philosophy is created, or at least the theological philosophy is created as a way to allow the heretics to continue existing. Because if they just ask the simple questions, if they just focused on the reality in a simple way, in a logical way, without getting too complicated, then it's evident to all, and it's undeniable, really, to someone who's thinking critically and logically, that, of course, our world had an intelligent creator. Of course. And by doing that, of course, that extends to the fact there must be purpose in the world and the fact there must be Torah because God must communicate what he wants from us. There must be things which are good and things which are not good. And there must – all those things kind of fall into place. All those dominoes fall into place once you accept this thing which is so simple. But still, even though it's so simple, everyone should really be responsible to develop and hone and clarify for themselves whatever it is that gives them that confidence that they could be in the category, not just people who believe because of faith, because of tradition, but people who believe because of knowledge. So I, I could say just a simple question, and this is the question the Ram talks about. Did the world create itself? Did the galaxies create themselves? It's such a simple question. It's a four-word question. Can something create itself? Of course not. So therefore, there has to be someone who created it. So when we see something, we know a creator. It's very simple. It seems even elementary. And we're trained to say, no, 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 you got to complicate it. You got to talk about first cause. And if you don't, not talking about Kant or uh, uh, or Descartes or some sort of great philosopher, it's not a real conversation. No, we have the Rambam who towers over them all. Simple. Did matter create itself? Of course not. So then who created matter? There must be a creator. There must be a creator who's not created because everything that is created has a creator. Simple questions. But what about evolution? Well, even what about evolution? So what? Evolution, first of all, is not talking about who ran it. Evolution is a process. So it's possible that God used evolution to create the world, to create species. Maybe yes. Maybe no. Maybe he created it all the way it is. We don't, we don't know. We don't have a say of how God, we have no position. You ask us, what's the Jewish position on what methods that God used to create the world? The answer is we don't know. We have 31 verses in Genesis. We know who created the world. We don't know exactly how he did it. We could say, well, he used the earth for, for man. Sure. Fine. But that, but how God created the world, we don't know. You look at the Ramban, he said that God on day one created matter, created energy, created the building blocks that he formed into everything else. But again, we don't, we, we're not told the specific process. It's possible evolution is true just so long as you say that God manipulated it. But people are not usually happy with that. And then you say, okay, 
well, who created the first amoeba? Evolution starts with a very, very complex thing. It starts with a nuclear bomb. That's what it starts with. And even then, it's it's so irrational to suggest that a mouse magically turns into an elephant. It's so crazy. But the intelligentsia, they say that we're crazy. They say that, no, you guys haven't figured it out. You're not sophisticated enough. Simple. How does a mouse turn into an elephant without anyone manipulating that? Oh, the zebra stretched its neck out and turned into a giraffe. It sounds, it sounds childish when you simplify it. It's childish. But the complication was created as a way to create murkiness, to create a smoke screen, to create doubt. And that is the tools of the heretic. I'm not saying that we can't think critically, we can't think on a deep level. But I'm saying over here, it's important for you to be as real and as logical as possible and not escaping to things that you don't understand. So like for example, the Talmud says this. This is the words of the Talmud and therefore we could very much present it here. The Talmud says a statement that we know is unambiguously true. The Talmud says that if you take all the intellect of all the people in the world, moreover, if you take all the people that have ever existed all that combined intelligence, incredible amount of intelligence. It could create skyscrapers and jet turbines and internet, all kinds of cool things. But let's say we want to create just one mosquito, one fruit fly. That's it. The most lowly of all creatures. Again, there's a trillion species on this planet. Just one fruit fly, one mosquito. That's the Talmud. You combine all the wisdom, all the ingenuity, all the engineering of all of humanity, you can't do it. You can't. So who in their right mind would say that this didn't, wasn't created, happened accidentally? If you can't create it willfully, with intent, with intellect, with tools, whatever it is, you can't do it. How do you suggest it happened on its own? It's, it's so asinine in my eyes. But that's not just, not, not just a, a fruit fly. It's everything. A trillion different fruit flies, all, all of them different, all of them able to reproduce perfectly. It's an incredible thing, though. It's so obvious to all that there is an intelligent design, yet people resist it. And we understand, you know, it's it's there. The reason why they're resisting it is because there's all kinds of implications. Once you believe in intelligent design, it's scary. Someone's watching my behavior. I might have to give an accounting for it. I'll have to be one of those weird religious people. Uh, there's all kinds of things that people are scared of, but the logic is very sound. We live in a world that's organized to perfection. It's so whoever wants to escape to Mars, they don't realize the second they get to Mars, they're going to die on the spot because it's a, it's a world uniquely unsuited for human habitation or for any kind of habitation. And yet we're here. Everything's so perfect. Everything works so beautifully. And all we like to do is complain. There's too much pollution. There's too much CO2 in the environment. All kinds of problems that we have. You know, the things aren't good enough where everything is just so beautiful, so perfect, so tailored, so designed for us, yet we resist it. And again, the answer is that the God is hidden in the world. All you got to do is scrape away at the surface, but you have to do some work to scrape at the surface. At Sinai, it was undeniable. No one at Sinai said, no, I don't, I don't believe. Everyone believed. It was undeniable. Yet, before Sinai, so to speak, the existence of God was 
undeniable, but there was some work you needed to, to, you needed to do to understand it. And that's what we have to do to bolster our existing faith is to deepen our understanding of this principle, to upgrade from people who have belief to people who have knowledge. And everyone should find for themselves whatever angel works for them. There's a lot of different angels to pursue. But the point is it should be yours. Don't be puppeting around what other people told you. Say what you think is true, what you think makes sense, what you think is logical. Because if you use that process, you're going to invariably end up at the truth. What I want to say for next time is the following question. And this is a very advanced question. But it seems like it results from the Rambam's principle, from this principle. And the question is, does creation contradict perfection? Rambam tells us that there is an existence called God, which is perfect, lacks nothing, is totally independent, needs nothing. Well, what do we see? We see a world. We see humans, we see animals, we see angels, we see galaxies, we see all kinds of things that are not God. God does not need them, tells the Rambam. Yet, God created and continually creates them. How do those things coexist? If God needs nothing, God lacks nothing, God's totally perfect, what would, so to speak, motivate him to act and to create and to bring about all these other things that are not God. Does creation contradict perfection? That's going to be the subject of our next session when we try to understand more about what the implications are, not just the ideals. What are the implications of this first principle and what are the questions that maybe we could ponder as a result of these principles and how they are laid out so beautifully by the Rambam.